any good sophisticated safety and security apparatus is actually functions around what we call layered security, that you're going to have multiple things going on simultaneously. Never, none of them is perfect, and we know that, but that you just essentially hinder or delay the capacity for something to be successful. Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School Policy Cast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes or elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. Today, we're joined by Juliet Kayyem, a lecturer here at the Kennedy School who served as Assistant Secretary for Intergovernmental Affairs at the Department of Homeland Security and Homeland Security Advisor to former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick. She's a frequent contributor to CNN and WGBH and recently published a new book, Security Mom, an Unclassified Guide to Protecting Our Homeland and Your Home. Last week was an interesting week in terms of uh, the conversation about airport security um, because it started off with all these headlines about huge long lines at every major airport. You know, you, you had stories of like four hour lines at O'Hare, at uh, JFK, every, all of the airports. Um, and there was a lot of, there were a lot of people saying, well, why do we even need the TSA? The TSA is, I mean, it's been shown not to be all that effective. We don't know if they've actually stopped any, any attacks or anything like that. Um, and then later in the week, we find we find out that over the Mediterranean an Egypt Air uh, flight crashes, yeah. and we still at this point don't know for sure what happened. Right. But there are some worries that it was a, a, a terrorist attack that came from a major airport in Europe in Paris. Yeah. So, um, what's what's your take on this? What do we I mean, make this of it? Is the, this is the challenge of safety and security in a society like ours, which is, um, and I describe in my most recent book, it's the Goldilocks uh, problem, which is it's either too hot, too hot, too cold, but never just right. And I think this week was sort of a perfect week in describing that, 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 uh, that uh, you know, people thought TSA was incompetent and, and delaying their time of getting from point A to point B. And then by the end of the week, although, as you said, you know, we the data points are pointing in multiple directions. I would say more data points are 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 uh, suggesting uh, an explosive device, but I'm not there yet. At least as of a, uh, not even a week later, four or five days later, um, and that's the challenge of safety and security. I will say on TSA. Um, they, the systemic problems they have are, are well known. It's an unhappy place to work, massive attrition, um, maybe a lot of security theater. Uh, the more immediate problems that we saw are ongoing for the summer that we're going to see ongoing are actually the result of a sort of bad combination, a sort of perfect storm of, uh, you know, lack of resources from Congress, uh, air, air flights being cheaper because uh, petroleum's cheaper, uh, people having more money in their pockets, so they're traveling more, um, uh, fewer people joining this thing called TSA Clear, or some people have the global entry system than was anticipated so that you have more people in the burdened security than the unburdened security. So it's all these things were coming together, plus really sort of not successful staffing issues uh, at those major airports that just mm -hmm. led to these lines that were inexcusable. But the solution is 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 more than just putting a bunch of TSA agents at the right place at the right time, although that will help. And I think that's the challenge for any security apparatus at this stage, TSA being the most visible to the American public. Um, and the way I describe it to people is, um, you know, there's a, you know, 
there's a lot to criticize about TSA, but don't look at at TSA as as this moment, this single point where you know before nothing's happening and after you're cleared. I mean, any good, sophisticated safety and security apparatus is actually functions around what we call layered security. That you're going to have multiple things going on simultaneously. Never, none of them is perfect, and we know that. But that you just essentially hinder or delay the capacity for something to be successful. So um, that's how to think about that security line that you visually see. But the amount of security, uh, checking of your itinerary, background checks on you as a passenger, surveillance going on when you enter on the on the highway leading up to the airport, uh, the amount of sec- layered security that's going on even before the moment you get to that gate is quite extensive. You mentioned the term security theater. Yeah. Uh, can, you, can you explain so what that I'm, is? So I'm like one of these people who's like, I kind of like it sometimes, and I don't mean to be uh, um, uh, coy with the term. So security theater is just a term to describe the surge, the the, the sort of output of uh, uh, visible security uh, entities, whether it's uh you know, people in uniforms or dogs or cameras or whatever else um, uh, to to give the look of security, but it's just all sort of theater, right? It's not mm-hmm. actually giving you safety and security. And I push back on that sometimes. You know, I, I sort of question how much of what airport security is um, security theater or it's just the nature of the magnitude of our aviation apparatus in this country. There is no country like ours when you think of the massive amount of travel going on in the United States. People always say, well, look at, at Israel. I was like, you look at Israel has one airport and six million people, right? There are two, I think it's close to two million people on domestic flights a day, right? So, so part of what you're seeing is just an attempt to allow for the flow of people onto their airplanes, but also try to minimize the potential threats. And so that's a little bit, but I will say about security theater, sometimes after something horrible has happened, um, you know, security theater is appropriate. People want to feel safer. And if they see a bun, you know, 5,000 National Guards members at the next Boston Marathon after the attacks on 2013, so be it, right? Because what you want is you want people to uh, maintain maintain uh, the spirit of, uh, you know, community. And if that means that there is some security theater, I'm kind of fine with it, especially after an incident. I mean, Mm -hmm. especially after something like the Boston Marathon or, you know, after Paris, our football games, that was security theater. That's fine with me, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, if people then are going to go to stadiums, that's completely fine. Now, the Department of Homeland Security has, you know, repeatedly tested the TSA in terms of their effectiveness at stopping things from getting through scanners, et cetera. Uh, And they've come up failed uh, failed very hard. Um, And uh, so I think that a lot of people who talk about security theater are, are saying, well, if this isn't actually stopping anything, why why are we going through this? this this hassle of right. you know taking off our shoes and and you know not having so i mean a couple it's a great question and so part of it is there's a little bit of pushback at least in the world i live in on on some of those assessments so uh that the most famous report that you're discussing was a internal ig report that was testing a certain um capability of a new uh technology it was failing 
part of why the IG was testing it was to see whether they should onboard it to other airports. Someone leaked the bad numbers and then it becomes a story. So, of course, no mm -hmm. one listens to the explanation. I'm not defending even their purchasing of that. It's just like part of what you want to do is test these systems in real life. And the testing showed that this was not a very effective system. So that mm -hmm. that is good. But I will. Uh, so that's just worth explaining. But I, I think, you know, I can't, you know, sometimes I even wonder as a um, mother who travels with three kids um, and, and can lose her temper at airports, you know, wouldn't it have just been easier to, you know, arm a few guys and have a lock on the cockpit door? Like it would have been cheaper and easier. I think part of it is that um, you, that if a domestic flight was attacked in the U.S. I, I don't think we quite comprehend what that actually would mean. I mean, in other words, part of this is just so much focus on preventing that bad thing um, from happening. But I do think um, that what you're starting to see as DHS matures, but certainly as the Homeland Security apparatus matures, so those are separate things, mm -hmm. is, um, uh, you know, is that there will be two classes of travelers in the future. There'll be the burdened and the unburdened. So, so buying your argument, right, or your, your assessment, which is this seems ridiculous, we're taking out our shoes and whatever, there's a way to get around that, which is TSA pre-clear or, or global entry. And I think in five years, once we people start signing up for it, you'll just have two classes of travelers. <laughs> and and then eventually, hopefully, the, the pre-cleared class will overwhelm the un, uncleared uh, uh, class and people will just be getting through. One of the things that I, I read was an analysis of the uh, air traffic since the TSA has uh, been implemented. Um, and it found that there was something like a, a don't quote me, I don't no, know if I have this exactly right, but uh, I think it was something like a 6% uh, decrease in the use of air travel um, because of the added uh, burden of having to plan for the TSA, you know, plan to be there two hours early, right. uh, especially in corridors like Boston and New York, yeah. where that can make driving actually a faster uh, option than flying. Um, and as a result of that, we've actually seen more deaths because driving more dangerous. is far, far yeah. more dangerous. Um, is that something that uh, we should think about? <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's, it's just the, to everyone in safety and security knows that um, security basically stops you from getting from point A to point B, right? And so mm -hmm. the question is, how much is it hindering you? And what level of tolerance will we have for that? So, you know, I always love these stories on, you know, local news that, you know, some reporter will be like, I got this machete onto the MBTA. And you're like, yeah, because the alternative is, is that we're doing baggage check, getting onto the green line. That ain't going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. You know, because we won't tolerate it. I think there is a certain level. I think the, the market is working in this way. There's a certain level of tolerance for this. There's a, a non-option issue if you're going further than on the eastern uh, seaboard. Um, but I think that's not, um, I think since you can't find that perfect balance between security and optimizing airline travel, you're probably always going to get like a 6% or 10% mm -hmm. differential. I'm not sure, you know, whether more those people will come, um, you know, to uh, an airport uh, 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 if there's not that security. I mean, I look, I go to New York uh, uh, a couple times a, a month. I take the train not because of security, because of the 
gosh darn traffic between LaGuardia, which can be right. twice as long as the flight. Um, and so there are many reasons why people are probably avoiding airports at this stage. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in your book, Security Mom, yeah. uh, you described a kind of tension between Eleanor Roosevelt <laughs> and LaGuardia, appropriately yeah. enough. Could you explain that and what what it represented? Yeah. So after or during World War II, excuse me, um, uh, uh, there was a, a growing recognition that war had changed. I know it's hard for us to imagine, especially the kinds of wars that are fought in the Middle East, but this idea of civilians being impl- you know, implicated or attacked or, or, the, or harmed by war was just very different. We had battlefields. World War I changed that a little bit, but it was really World War II with Dresden and London and everything else. So there was a tremendous pressure on the Franklin Delano Roosevelt to push um, uh, uh, to get more what what they called civil defense, but we now call it homeland security. Mm-hmm. And so the, the mayor of New York at that time, uh, LaGuardia, um, uh, sends a famous letter to FDR in which, uh, you know, because FDR is doing all this sort of community effort stuff, and he says, uh, I fear that all the things you do are, uh, you know, all these things are sissy, right? <laughs> and he was really, I mean, you couldn't even imagine, I mean, maybe you can in the political discourse today, but, you know, that, that, uh, that they're too soft, um, and uh, and he wanted the guns and the and the shelters and the you know all the stuff that would protect the homeland. And the truth is, is that uh, and and he was focused on um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt having uh, g- uh, given Eleanor Roosevelt such a leadership role in uh, in in this these community efforts. Mm-hmm. The truth is, is that our homeland defense is a combination of LaGuardia and Roosevelt. Too much LaGuardia, and you're going to forget the capacity and capability of state, local, and community efforts. Too much. Uh, 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 Eleanor Roosevelt, and you, it's very hard to prevent bad things from happening. You, you know, and, and we sort of come to terms with it over time. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, there's a unbelievable balance um, uh, before, uh, during the senior Bush, who sort of uh, the first Bush president, in which he, for the first time, sort of uh, uh, through policies and federal policies, sort of aligns Eleanor and. Uh, and LaGuardia. That is mm-hmm. then uh, ends with 9-11. We, we were all LaGuardia all the, t- all the time. And actually, it's only more recently that you see sort of this understanding that, wait, we haven't we haven't nurtured our our our, mm-hmm. our security mom, so to speak. It's pretty easy to picture what the LaGuardia model is. You know, yeah. it's the it's guns and fortifications, yeah. et cetera. Uh, can, can and you it's describe, measurable. Right. Right. Can you describe the, the Eleanor model, uh, I the guess? Eleanor model, I mean, I tend to think of it as sort of the Red Cross model. It mm-hmm. is uh, preparedness at home. It's communication. It is uh, 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 engaging doctors and nurses and others to help um, in terms of preparedness. It's blood drives. It is uh, individuals with their skills, resources, and goodwill uh, giving to the common good mm-hmm. uh, rather than government give you know giving them stuff to protect them mm-hmm. it's also much more focused on after the boom right after the boom a term that uh, uh to describe response and recovering resiliency as compared to prevention and preparedness mm-hmm. um uh, uh, uh prevention and protection um it's much more focused on the expectation that something bad will happen um and we need to prepare ourselves for that mm-hmm. and this you know if this all sounds familiar I and mean, we you know this is the way we're debating it right now right well you know it seems like a common 
common theme is resilience. Yes. Uh, one thing I found interesting about what happened last week was that um, all this discussion of the Egypt Air uh, disaster, yeah. um, it really quashed the whole discussion of the, the TSA. Yeah. Now, that is a, it's a pretty good question, I think, to ask. Is that a good reason to stop the discussion of whether the TSA is... Uh... No, I don't think so. I mean, and I do believe that there has to be systemic changes and rethoughts about our safety and security, especially because we don't know what Egypt Air is. I mean, one of the reasons someone like me has been so public about why we don't jump the gun, as, as Donald Trump has, about what it is, is um, too many times in my career I've seen us fix things that don't need to be fixed and not fix things that need to be fixed based on some idea of how it happened. And mm. then you look years later or months later, we later you go oh we we went down the wrong path you know also we owe it to the families to get it right right i mean it's not about our election it is about these you know 60 plus families that have lost have had a massive tragedy and so right. um and so but but i think your question sort of the best way for me to answer it is it is that it's a mistake to view uh, safety and security or a safety security apparatus as um, being fixed in time. I mean, in other words, the fact that TSA is going to change or pivot or or ratchet up or ratchet down is actually totally consistent with a vibrant security apparatus and, you know, based on whatever the threat is. So, um, and that's the challenge is that we, you know, nothing stays the same, including our security environment. And so, um, I'm hoping that we always have these conversations, whether mm -hmm. it's Egypt Air or TSA or Coast Guard or FEMA or whatever. You don't want to be in a position where you feel like, you know, back to the Goldilocks that you got it just right, sure. right? Because you're never going to get it just right because the threats will change and the fears will change and the, you know, every, you know, and and government's responsibility will change depending mm -hmm. on what the threat is. Mm -hmm. And of course, this is a conversation that is very relevant right now uh, because we're in a campaign season yes. uh, and. Uh, you know, I, I once uh, a former guest, uh, Mark McKinnon. He yeah. was George Bush's, yes. uh, the the, sec the juniors' um, chief campaign strategist. He did a great New York Times video where he basically said, uh, "When you're running for president, you can run on two things: you can run on hope or fear." And it seems that it's boiling down to uh, on the Democratic side uh, hope-ish hope-ish yeah. <laughs> uh, and then on the other side total fear <laughs> so can you total can you explain um, total I mean I I'm clearly a Democrat I've been a Democrat all my career and I don't scare easily um, what's happening in this country I predicted Trump a, a year ago I, I was on record as saying it will be him you just saw what was going to happen but um, so Trump needs to win, right, in the sense that's if you're Trump, you, and how are you going to win? Um, so there's outside things that could occur uh, that will help him, which would be another terror attack between now, uh, San Bernardino-like terror attack between now and November. I think we know what the polling will suggest on that, that people will be fearful. He will be the repository of that fear. Um, and um, and the Democrats, with their more nuanced approach, will not be able to have a narrative. And so, um, but the other is that uh, he, in particular, on the issue I've been focused on, um, he will not win the woman's vote. He only needs to put a dent into her 
perceived dominance of the woman's vote. And if he can do that enough in enough demographics, he can do it with African-Americans, Hispanics, whatever, you know, um, if he can get enough evangelicals to vote, you know, so he'll put together a crazy quilt. So you're assuming a Hillary... Uh, yes. Democratic nominee. Yeah, I, I look at the numbers. I'm a numbers girl. <laughs> okay. I look at the numbers. Uh, um, and uh, and so if that's the case, uh, he is focused and it's starting to be written about on the security moms, on the women who voted in 2002 and 2004 uh, for the more conservative, more tough candidate, whether it was in their Senate races or there or in 2004 for Bush, a demographic mostly white. Um, so the demographic, a character of the demographic is a white woman in the suburbs who's very, very nervous about the threats around the world, even though you know she knows that the likelihood of it impacting her are minimal, um, feels paralyzed by this information and is looking for an answer in the tough guy, the big man, the savior. Um, and so that's there's a strategic reason why Trump is focused on, on security issues. Um, and will be. I mean, if you, you know, we're, we're talking at a moment in time, but just like, you know, I do follow his tweets just because both as a like social experiment, but also because it's good to know what he's, you know, in the last, you know, since Egypt, it's been all about safety and security. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't, you know, and, and the, the more, back to your question, what, what does Eleanor look like? What does that look like? That's more nuanced, it's more difficult, it's softer, it's, mm-hmm. it's not, uh, it's more, it's sissy. Mm-hmm. And um, that is, that's the narrative that uh, is harder to tell. And if, God forbid, there is, uh, people lose their lives in the U.S. between now and November, it's not only a tragedy because of the loss of life, it is, I think, um, gonna have a tremendous impact on um, whether uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, assuming she gets the nomination, whether Hillary Clinton can have a counter narrative. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard for Democrats. It seems it's been a while since we had a national security focused election. Yeah. Like we can go back to 2004, it was obvious. Since then, we've the major issues have kind of diversified. Economic and yeah. Even in this election, uh, you, you might say the biggest issues are uh, immigration or mm-hmm. inequality. Um, you know, issues that really tend away from national security, and maybe that's because we haven't, other than San Bernardino, had yeah. a major right. uh, terrorist attack on on. You US saw the polling. Soil. Actually, if you look at the polling in December, uh, terrorism became one of the number one issues that people were going to vote on. But for whatever reason, it sort of fell by, dissipated. But one of the reasons is, um, you know, the Democrats are still in a battle of which is a battle for the left, so they're, they're particularly not concerned. But immigration, I would actually uh, correct that immigration is all about national security. That's what. Mm-hmm. That's how he views it. It is not about commerce or labor, whatever. It is about the terrorists are getting through our allegedly open borders, mm-hmm. and so, um, so, so we've we you know where where immigration was uh, uh, normally and and future flows of immigration had historically been about um, economic issues. Uh, Donald Trump has successfully turned it into totally a security issue. Hmm. So what do you expect is going to happen? I think I think it's going to be a tough race. I've been saying it all along. I think, look, if you if we as a nation go through wild swings between our presidents, just think, you know, you know, Obama Bush, the best example, mm-hmm. um, you know, Clinton, I mean, uh, Carter, Ford, I mean, you know, you just in Nixon, Kennedy, I mean, you just or Johnson, it's, you just, um, you know, he fits it. He is if you wanted to pick person so unlike Obama. Right. Um, uh, and um, 
and she will have to uh, galvanize uh, the same support that Obama had. What we don't know is once the president and the vice president and Elizabeth Warren and the apparatus is squarely allowed to be behind her, so this is one of the challenges with having Bernie Sanders still in the race, um, is uh, it may it may seem very different. But I will, uh, all my Democratic friends say demographics is destiny. We've got this. I don't believe them on their lives. Uh, this is this man, um, Donald Trump, has a um, uh, captured the imagination of the Republican uh, primary electorate, and I think he has the talent to do the same and uh, uh, for a general electorate. And I think it's incumbent on people to um, uh, to not resign themselves to him. To you know the the never Trump Republicans who won't vote for him but won't vote for Hillary seem to me to be absolutely absurd. Um, you only get two choices, and um, and for those who really worry about the future of our country and our safety and security, and even for our our our. our our, our Republican lowercase r form of government um, to be as noisy as possible because this one's this one's scary. Well, Juliet Kayam, thank you so much for coming thank on PolicyCast today. Really appreciate it. I appreciate it too. Thank you. Juliet Kayam is a lecturer here at HKS. Security Mom is the name of both her recent book and her podcast, which we'll link to in the show notes. HKS PolicyCast is produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Special thanks to those who help get us out there every week, including Natalie Montaner and Catherine Serafin. And to you for listening in. See you next week. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. You can subscribe to PolicyCast on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. And let us know what you think on Twitter, at PolicyCast.